All right. Good morning, Redeemer. Um, thank you, Jim, for that kind introduction. As uh, Ryan already read through the gospel, I won't repeat that, but we're going to um, kind of take it in sections today and kind of break down um, some of those various uh, phrases and teachings from Jesus to his disciples. Um, just to give a little background context before we jump in, uh, last week Ryan was talking about uh, the parable of the rich fool. Um, and we're really piggybacking off of that, uh, that story and that account. Um, so some of the key points there, um, there were uh, someone in the crowd who was asking Jesus to decide uh, the inheritance, to make sure that he got his fair due, his fair portion. And, uh, you know, Jesus then uh, told them to guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance with one's possessions. Uh, so that idea of greed. Um, and now we're kind of shifting gears into that concept of worry. Um, so greed, um, one commentator was saying, is, um, you know, concern about having or wanting too much. And worry is concern about not having enough. Uh, so that's a real simple kind of way to frame uh, our conversation before we dive in today. Um, so just as an overall introduction, I don't think many of you would disagree with this point uh, that our world is filled with worry. When we turn on the news, when we scroll through our social media, or think about the things on our to-do list when we first wake up, often our mind will rest on some thought or concern that will cause us to worry. I know that myself am often prone to this. Uh, For me, it stems back to a childhood where my family experienced an unexpected and tragic loss of two members of our family. So at an early age, I learned that there are times when we'll be faced with events that are devastating and totally beyond our control. So what do we do in in those cases? We're we're all going to face them inevitably at some point. So one response to this is to attempt to control every variable possible in our lives to promote the outcome that we desire. It is like in our sinful pride we think that we have a deeper insight of the situation and that if we were in control that somehow things would work out better. So deep at the root of this worry is our sinful nature that causes us to doubt that God will take care of us and that he is in control. What about you? Do you worry? If so, what type of things occupy your mind? What are you worried about? So for many of us, these are very practical and pressing concerns. Simple things like having less money in our bank account than is due for that large mortgage payment that is coming due. So other worries can be more personal, more to the heart, like getting news of a medical diagnosis that will somehow impact our quality or even our quantity of life. Sometimes we worry about other people. We worry about our loved ones, our families and friends, and the struggles that they are going through. Some of these may be very real. Some of us may be going through these now or have loved ones dealing with these issues. Things like addiction, things like loss of job, personal tragedy, health problems, broken relationships, or their lack of faith of God. Basically, the result of living in a sinful world without a redeemed heart. So we can feel overwhelmed and powerless over these worries, over these situations. So what is our answer? Where do we seek hope? Isn't it awesome that we have the written word of God and can learn from Jesus about what to do with this weight of worry? Today we will be covering Luke 22:34, which Ryan has already read, where Jesus starts by saying to his disciples, Do not be anxious about your life, in verse 22. So as I briefly mentioned, we're going to break things down into sections. 
This first section is just briefly titled, Don't Worry About Food or the Body. And we'll cover verses 22 through 24 in this section. So I'll read 24, where Jesus is addressing his disciples. That's an important point not to gloss over. Um, In other cases, he was addressing the crowd or the person speaking to him. But in this case, he is addressing the disciples. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. So, wow, if we let that sink in in our current modern world, this is an extremely countercultural statement. When we look at all the advertisements that overwhelm us with paper, billboard, digital screens, they tell us that the message life is about the type of foods that we eat, a certain body image, ever-changing fashions to adorn our human frame. All of these things come with promises to upgrade our life in some way or our status on the limitless pursuit of happiness and social achievement. But do these things fulfill the promise? Maybe it's that new diet. Maybe it's the new fitness plan, the most expensive shoes, or fill-in-the-blank object or trend that currently has gripped your attention. You can just imagine how good it's going to feel when you finally saved up enough money to purchase that desired object or start that lifestyle change. But what happens next? We have all been there with something. Looking back in my memory bank, I can recall in third grade uh, wanting a pair of Nike Air Jordans more than anything else. Uh, That also ties into Ryan's sermon last week. I had a chance to listen to it on the podcast. Um, So I had no idea um, how my mom was going to afford those, but somehow she came through, and I was one of the first kids in my grade to have those flashy new Air Jordans. And, you know, At first, I took them home, I sniffed them, kind of took in that smell of the new shoe. I took out my Polaroid camera, took pictures as I was unboxing it. Um, So this was a a high level of achievement for my third grade life, uh, having a a brand new pair of Jordans. So I I just couldn't wait uh, to be the coolest kid in school. So after I got them, um, I, I found that that effect... The desired effect was initially there. I felt great. I had the, uh, the mindset that somehow these were going to make me better at playing basketball. They'd make me faster, jump higher. Um, they'd give me all these superhuman abilities uh, just by having that little air bubble in the shoe. Um, but then I started to wear them daily. They started to get scuffed. Uh, they started to get worn out. My friends started coming to school with cooler and newer and different shoes like the Reebok pumps. Um, so there were other shoes out there that made mine kind of seem less shiny and appealing. Um, but if we're honest, isn't this what happens to all of our stuff eventually? Eventually, it is either going to wear out, fade out of style, or we'll just lose interest and move on to the next thing. These things make us feel good for a moment, but they do not have the ability to satisfy or fulfill us in any lasting way. So what does Jesus say about this in verse 23? For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. So clothes, they have a function. They protect us from the elements, but eventually they wear out and need replaced, as we just saw. So food does the same thing. It sustains us for a while, but then we get hungry and yet need to eat again. So we see this in John chapter 6, verses 48 through 52, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh." 
So when we take that statement into account, why do we spend so much of our resources in pursuit of these fleeting things instead of the eternal things promised in Christ? Again, moving on to verse 24, we get another example. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? So this is going to seem pretty obvious as we go through this, but just bear with me. The ravens do not work hard to cultivate the land like a farmer, but yet God still feeds them. If we were to compare the raven to the farmer, we might even call the raven lazy or irresponsible. The raven does not plant seeds. It does not collect the harvest, and it does not build a place to store the abundance of crop, to have food after the season of harvest. Yet, God provides for its needs, though lazy and irresponsible it may be. So Jesus tells us that we are of much greater value than the birds. Is that just because we're taller, bigger, (laughs) stronger? No, it's because we are image bearers of the Father. Pointing back to Genesis 1.27, we see, So God created man in his own image. So do we trust the Father to provide for our needs in the way he does for the raven, as we are made in his image? Moving on to the second section, don't worry about what is beyond our control. We're going to cover verses 25 and 26. Starting in 25, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? So, Obviously, Jesus, yes, this is a rhetorical question. And obviously, the answer is none of us can. Jesus, none of us can do this. So Jesus demonstrates our futility in our anxiety. And being anxious at any time to your life? Absolutely not. So, again, why do we spend so much of our finite time worrying about matters that worry will never and can never change? So, I have an idea on this. Um, This is not scripture. This is my idea on this. We desire control over our circumstances. And worry is one way that we may gain that illusion of control over our circumstances. So I think it plays in to what scripture is teaching, but that is just kind of my separate idea. So we forget our role of created being and that only our creator is sovereign over all things. In 26, if then... You are not able to do as small a thing as that. Why are you anxious about the rest? So the part that I was stuck on here, how amazing is it that Jesus calls it a small thing to be able to add time to the span of life? For us, looking at our role in creation, the created being, us, this is unfathomable, impossible. Yet for God, the infinite creator of all things, it is merely a small thing. So this contrast is huge. And it puts our limitations into perspective compared to God's limitless power over his creation. But also liberates us and gives us permission to not spend that finite resource of time worrying about the many things in life that we are unable to change simply by worrying about them. So this truth, again, frees us to rightly place our trust in God and his sovereign plan for his creation. Third point. Don't worry about clothes. Verses 27 through 28. Starting in 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So we have to go back a little bit to the Old Testament to see who is this Solomon in all of his glory. Solomon is a king. 
He's a son of David and happened to be the one to build the temple. So no small deal there. He's a pretty important figure. So we are told in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12, that God gave him a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. Solomon was also very rich, as God continues in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 13. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. Again, we learn in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14, that the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents. So if you're anything like me, you're looking around in your Bible and cross-references and footnotes and trying to figure out what on earth is 666 talents. So I did the work. A talent is about 75 pounds, so that totals to 49,950 pounds of gold. So in minivan terms, that's about 11 minivans uh, of solid gold. So, uh, again, um, it just goes on to describe how wealthy and how rich and how wise. Uh, so, again, in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 21, I just wanted to point out this example of his excessive wealth on display. All of King Solomon's drinking vessels, so we have plastic bottles to contain our water and maybe some glassware at home, but all of King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. None were silver. Silver was not considered anything in the days of Solomon. Yet, in all of his wisdom, with all of his riches and honor, and with his majestic status as king, Jesus tells us that even Solomon was not dressed like the beautiful flowers of the field. In verse 28, we read, But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and is tomorrow thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So Jesus echoes here Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In his commentary on Luke, R. Kent Hughes points out, his followers are not only citizens of earth, but also of eternity. They are not temporary, but eternal. So there's this contrast of earthly, eternal, temporary, eternal. So if God puts such intricate and beautiful detail into the creation of flowers that fade, wither, and die, then how much more will he clothe his children in this eternal kingdom? Just to get a little background on the kingdom, this idea of kingdom, what is it? According to Louis Burkhoff in his Systematic Theology, he asserts that the kingdom of God is mostly dealing with eschatology, one of those big words that I'll break down simply to the study of last things. The primary idea of the kingdom, according to Burkhoff, is the rule of God established and acknowledged in the hearts of sinners by the powerful regenerating influence of the Holy Spirit, ensuring them of the inestimable blessings of salvation, a rule that is realized in principle on earth, but will not reach its fullness or culmination until the visible and glorious return of Jesus Christ. And we'll touch on that a little bit more later. That, I know that's a lot to digest in one little section, so we'll, we'll revisit that. In other words, if the Holy Spirit has regenerated our, heart, regenerated our hearts and we are in Christ by grace alone and through faith alone, we can be assured of our salvation in the present while our spirit awaits the future coming of our Lord in all of his glory and the fullness of his eternal kingdom. Section 4. 
Don't seek the culture. Seek the kingdom of God. Verses 29 through 32. Take 29 and 30 together. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all of the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Jesus warns us against worry about what we are going to eat or drink next. And how many of us, while we're having a meal, are already thinking about what we're going to have for the next meal? Uh, Are we going to prepare it? Are we going to go out? We're we're constantly in this cycle of thinking about what are we going to eat or drink next? These are the basic physiological needs that humanity universally shares. The Father already knows our need. So instead, in verse 31, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So many of us may be familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This was an intro to psychology concept that I learned far back in those undergraduate days. This theory suggests that the basic physiological needs are to be met before we can work up to those higher order needs. So he represents this in a pyramid. At the bottom of the pyramid are our basic needs, our physiological needs. Air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing, reproduction, the basic necessities of life. His thought is we have to have those things taken into account before we can move up. Next, we worry about safety. That's our personal security, employment, resources, health, property. Once we have all of that in order, we move on to belonging, friendship, intimacy, family, a sense of being connected. Then we move up to a higher order of esteem, things like respect, self-esteem, our status, wanting to be recognized, strengths, our freedoms. Two more notches up the ladder. We go into self-actualization. That's the desire to become the most we can be. So after we've already hit all those other markers, then it's about self-improvement, trying to become our best us. And then even on top of that, at the very pinnacle, transcendence, which is motivated by values which transcend beyond the personal self. Things that are listed are things like mystical experience, religious faith, pursuit of science, experiences with nature, these these things that are almost otherworldly. So that is Maslow's idea. So what does Jesus teach? He takes this pyramid flips it upside down. He basically inverts that order of Maslow's pyramid when he states that if we first seek the kingdom, these other basic needs will be added to you. So again, from the beginning to this point, very countercultural in Jesus' teaching. In verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus tells us to fear not, that the father is pleased to give us the kingdom. Earlier in Luke Chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Burkhoff goes on to teach us further about the kingdom. The present realization of the kingdom is spiritual and invisible, with the blessed hope of the future appearance of that kingdom in its external glory with the perfect blessings of salvation. So let that sink in. What a promise. And with such a promise and a future hope, the worries of this world tend to fade. And our stuff is not as important and defining in our lives. In light of eternity in the presence of God, even the heaviest burdens of our heart are made light. We have been rescued, redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Finally, the closing section. 
Don't hoard possessions or store treasures on earth. Chapters 33, or verses, excuse me, 33 through 34. And I'll take those together as well. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So there's an author. You may have heard about him. He had a book about heaven. Um, His name is Randy Alcorn. Uh, He has defined six treasure principles, and I'll briefly touch on these. You can look, look up more in his book about this concept. But it's a challenge to shift our thinking from an earthly to an eternal perspective. So I'll just briefly read them and and maybe elaborate some. First point, God owns everything. I try to teach this to my kids as I'm teaching it to myself, um, that we are just managers of God's assets, God's wealth, God's creation. Two, my heart always goes after where I put God's money. So where are we spending our money? Is this consistent with what we're proclaiming in our faith? Uh, from, our, from our mouth, are our actions, our investments in actual tangible dollars following our heart? Three, heaven, not earth, is my home. This is just a temporary residence. Um, so living life with that in sight should change our perspective. Point four, I should live not for the dot, but for the line. So this one in and of itself might not make sense, but if we look at the dot, we're looking at that continuum of time. The dot is this present reality, small, finite point on the line, whereas the line is that eternity in heaven. So, man, I mean, to put things in perspective, that small, tiny dot represents the present reality in that line that goes on forever is our future hope and glory. Five, I like this one a lot. Um, Giving is the only antidote to materialism. So how do we fix our greed and our excess and our hoarding? Is to give more. I mean, it's such a, again, countercultural idea. Six, final point. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, and some of you can probably fill in the blank. You might have heard this one before, but to raise my standard of giving. So I'll say it one more time. It's kind of cool and catchy. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. So I, th- I thought that those were neat. And again, if you're interested, you can find his book and learn more about that. So um, going back to uh, the commentary that I was looking through, R. Kent Hughes, he has a beautiful summary at the end. I'll just read it. We are to be generous with everything. Our money, our homes, our possessions, our luxuries, our time, our lives, everything we have must be committed to Christ. So, I turn it back to us, to you. Where do we invest our time, our resources, talent, thoughts, and affections? Are you challenged by this? I know that I am. As a husband, father of three young children, a full-time employee, I am acutely aware of the limitations of both time and resources and the struggle to be generous with everything and to commit everything Christ. I could go down this list and make excuses as to why I can't be generous. For example, with money, I can't be generous because of my student loans, my debts, my 7% interest rate, whatever it may be. I can't be generous. Look at all I owe. With our home, I can't be generous because I got to protect the safety and security of my family. I'm not going to invite a stranger that I don't know into my home. That's not safe. With our time, 
I can't be generous with my time because there's not enough to go around for all that already needs done. So if we are honest, we are often tempted to invest in our own little kingdom, like the man in the parable of the rich fool who invested everything in this world trying to build security and comfort for himself only to perish before he could enjoy it. So Jesus teaches us that the way to stop worrying about our things is by giving them away, by investing in his eternal kingdom where the heavenly treasure will never be destroyed. So in closing, let us be comforted by the words of Jesus that instruct us, do not be anxious about your life. Verse 22, as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let us repent of our sinful lack of trust in God. When we are prone to worry, when we are prone to try to take control over circumstances that are not ours to control, let us have confidence in knowing that in Christ, we have the present promise of salvation and the future hope of his eternal kingdom as we await the visible and glorious return of Jesus Christ. Be encouraged that when we invest our time, resources, talents, thoughts, and affections in his eternal kingdom, there is no need to worry about the security of our investment. So let us close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, in your precious name, Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its ability to cut through our hearts. And God, show us our sin. Show us the areas where we don't trust in you. God, What a pertinent topic to every day. I'm sure not a day goes by that we don't worry about something. So thank you, God, for dedicating a portion of your scripture to this very topic so that you may show us and teach us and change us and and shift us from an earthly perspective, God, to an eternal perspective, God, in, in our thinking and to trust in your sovereign provision for your people. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.